All right. So uh, before I start, Ella and Piper and Carolina were in a production of Sleeping Beauty this week, and they had, what, five performances this week? And today was the last one. Uh, and I wasn't at that one, so when Ella, Ella was a fairy in, in the play, and uh, Carolina and Piper were members of the, the royal court, um, and they spent half the play sleeping on the stage, which takes some real acting skill, to be honest. Um, but uh, Ella was a fairy, and I wasn't at the performance today, so when she came in, I kissed her on the forehead, and I walked by a mirror while ago and have glitter all over my mouth <coughs> and beard. So if you catch a glint of that, that, it's either that or, you know, the Shekinah glory, <coughs> one or the other. I haven't said that phrase in a long time. <laughs> and probably never seriously, to be honest with you. Okay, uh, as we start tonight, I want to share something with you I read recently. I came upon this really terrific essay that was written back in 2004 recently by a guy named John Sullivan, and he is, I, I don't know whether he would say he's a Christian or not at this point, or at the point that he wrote this, but he's somebody who clearly lived outside of uh, the Christian bubble, who was tasked with attending and writing about a three-day Christian music festival. And if you don't know what these are, uh, it's a pretty fascinating little piece of subculture where people show up, uh, usually at some big farm or outdoor venue, and mostly camp out and don't shower, uh, or shower in facilities that, for my personal sake, uh, are worse than not showering, um, and listen to Christian bands all the time. And so his job was to attend one of these and, and write about it. Uh, and, and the essay that he wrote, believe it or not, is what reminded me recently um, that before we ever even got into the actual text of the Sermon on the Mount in this series that we've been in about the words of Jesus, that I had said, hey, at some point we're going to come back and talk about, really talk about the nature of Jesus as divine and as human. Uh, but, but in this essay, what seems like early on is going to be sort of a full-on skewering of this crowd turns into something different, uh, in part because all of this, though this guy was not active in the church at this time, um, he had a season in his teen years where he was. And uh, the essay's really long. I'd be happy to share it with anybody who actually wants to read it. It's really long, um, and it comes with a full adult language warning. Uh, but toward the end of this essay uh, comes this passage that I'm going to read to you. Um, as he reflects on what this experience of being with these, he ends up, uh, he, <laughs> he ends up uh, renting an RV, uh, a really gross RV that he lives in for the, for the duration of the festival. And he's, as he's getting it stuck on a hill, these uh, guys who seem like they come out of uh, my southeast Texas family but are from West Virginia help him get unstuck, and he ends up hanging out with them all weekend. Uh, and they're sort of the perfect, like, if he wanted to stereotype uh, something sort of backwards and redneck, he easily could have done that uh, about, about this crowd with, the, with these guys. Uh, but, but toward the end of the essay, he's reflecting on what this experience with them at this festival tapped into for him as someone who's outside the church, but who was really altered by his experience with Jesus years before. And just for context for what I'm going to read, uh, he's writing here about 
how common it is for him in his life to run into other people who are not professing Christians, but as they talk, they discover that they both have some sort of Christian-y past that they don't like to talk about. Uh, and, and those people tend to talk about this as though it's something sort of shameful or as though they escaped a cult or something like that. So the first couple of sentences here are him kind of saying, that's not what my experience was like. It didn't leave me psychologically damaged. Um, or uh, he references someone named Mole showing up at his window. Mole was the leader of the group he was involved in when he was a teenager, and he's saying, I don't have dreams where he's popping up at my window uh, you know, years later. Um, so just so you have some context for what we're going to read. But this is what he writes uh, about all of that. He says, my problem is not that I dream I'm in hell or that Mole is at the window. It isn't that I feel psychologically harmed. It isn't even that I feel like a sucker for having bought it all. It's that I love Jesus Christ. And this is really powerful in the context of what he writes because you would have no sense that that sentence is coming. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. I can barely write that. He was the most beautiful dude. His breakthrough was the, big word, aestheticization of weakness. Not in what conquers, not in glory, but in what's fragile and what suffers. There lies sanity and salvation. Let anyone who has power renounce it, he said. Your father is compassionate to all, as you should be. That's how he talked to those who knew him. Why should he vex me? Why is his ghost not friendlier? Why can't I just be a good, enlightenment child and see in his life a sustaining example of what we can be as a species. Because once you've known him as God, it's hard to find comfort in the man. The sheer sensation of life that comes with a total, all-pervading notion of being, the pulse of consequence one projects onto even the humblest things, the pull of that won't slacken. I read that. I know it's a lot to take in, and like I said, I'll be glad to share the full thing. But I read those words and I thought, here's a man who is not actively trying to follow Jesus, but whose being has been completely altered by the man who was God, according to us. And I wonder if this is true for those of us who are regularly in this conversation and who have spent the last year, at least in this space, with the real words of Jesus. Has it become too easy for us to find only comfort and not conviction in Jesus? Is the, wi- the life and the way of Jesus total and all-pervading in the way that he describes here? Is that what it's like for us? Or are we sort of continuing to build him into the spaces um, between our default rhythms and comforts and preferences? When we, feel, when we read Jesus' words... When we hear them spoken out loud, do we feel a pull that won't slacken? That there's a lot of power in that phrase. A pull that God, that, that Jesus really is God's revelation of himself in human flesh, of what our life is meant to be, that will only wind up really, really, truly alive if we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, of the one who embraced the cross and told us that real life is found in resisting the lure of the world's comforts and giving our lives away.
When we read his words, do we feel that kind of pull toward that kind of life? And that's what I really want us to consider as we pause here before we reach into the last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in between chapter 6 and 7. I want to reflect on the nature and the authority of Jesus. And I want us to decide, maybe for the first time, but probably for most of us, again, for ourselves, how do we answer the question that Jesus turned and asked his disciples? Who am I to you? Who do you say that I am? Because Colossians, in Colossians, Paul says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says he's the exact imprint of God's very being. This is exactly who God is. And Jesus himself, as a human, declared that he is one with the Father, that he is God. And we explored that part of things last week, the divine nature of Jesus. And I'm not going to review all that, but I just as a like four-sentence summary, I want to read just part of the text that we read from C.S. Lewis last week, where he says this about Jesus, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So, that's one part of it. Based on what Jesus said, we don't really have the option of sort of pushing him off as, uh, as good, but not really God. He either is good and God, or he's a liar, or he's a madman, as Lewis said. Tonight, I want to look briefly into the other crucial aspect of the nature of Jesus, which is his humanity, that though he was God, he was really human. He was not God as a ghost. He was not uh, God in some sort of projected, uh, but not flesh form, that uh, he was truly human. And I want to talk about that that's true and why it matters so much. In Hebrews chapter 2, we read this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the big picture, that God made a big move, that God is always who he's always been. He's always been the same. Jesus doesn't come and change the nature of who he is, but he makes a move in sending Jesus through the life of Jesus, and that move required Jesus to be human, not that he be an angel or some other kind of divine being who just fooled us into thinking he was one of us, that he actually was one of us. And that move that God made in Jesus is sharing our humanity so that, according to the writer of Hebrews, by his death, he could destroy the enemy and free all of his people from the fear of even death. So that's what's happening, and that's, in a very short summary, why it's essential that Jesus, though God, uh, was really human. Him being human is essential to our redemption as we understand it. It's essential to our communion, to the way that we are connected to, and the way that we relate to him. The fact that he was one of us, and not just God sort of looking like he was human, but that he was truly a man is crucial to our understanding how we've been saved and changed and understanding how we relate to him. 
He can understand our nature because he experienced it. He really experienced human nature. He can sympathize with us because he's been one of us. And ultimately, he can rescue and redeem us from our condition because he shared the human condition. And that all sounds like, eh, that, sure, that's good doctrine. I believe that. Uh, but it doesn't really move me. And, and part of what I want us to do is look at sort of how we know that this is true, what, what evidence there is of the humanity of Jesus, and understand how revolutionary and transformative it is to see that God became a real human. The Gospels, if you read through them, um, they very clearly describe in various ways both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, um, as, and, and they give us these pictures of someone who experienced these realities of being human that we experience just like we do. So I have four or five examples of that that I want us to look at tonight. The first is this, that Jesus had distinctly human needs. He had physical needs, he had psychological needs, and he had uh, spiritual needs. Matthew 26 says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Simon Peter, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Um, my notes got out of order. This is page four, and page five was before page four somehow in my stack. So I'm going to back up a second because that's the text for the next um, part of what we see about Jesus uh, as it relates to his emotional and psychological needs. Uh, as a, as uh, we look at him having physical needs, John 4 tells a story about Jesus traveling from Judea to Galilee, and it tells us that Jesus got tired and that he got thirsty and from that comes one of the great stories about Jesus that we tell, the story of the woman at the well. Because Jesus was tired, because he was thirsty, he sat down at the place where you would sit down to rest and get a drink. Um, and he asks a woman to get him a drink. And, and out of that unfolds a story that's been revolutionary for some of us personally in understanding who Jesus is and therefore who God is and how he sees us and loves us and how we're supposed to see and love other people who culture and religion consider less than. All of that comes from what the scriptures tell us clearly. Not that Jesus decided to stop at the well because he knew this woman would be here, but that Jesus stopped because he was tired and because he was thirsty. And I don't know how often we've, if you've ever paused to consider that that's how we get that story. And there are others, other examples of this where Jesus is hungry or Jesus is tired and his physical needs drive us into a moment where we suddenly discover who he is or we see him doing something revolutionary or saying something to teach and instruct us on what life with God looks like. He had real physical needs. And that's that illustration with the woman on the well is one example of that, but his physical needs are obviously on full display in the road to the cross as he is beaten, as he suffers, and then at the cross itself. That experience also gives us this 
uh, terrific example of ways that he had other needs, that he had psychological and emotional and spiritual needs. In this particular case, he's uh, with his disciples, and um, he, he tells them, stay here, I'm going to go over here and pray. And then he took uh, a few of them with him, and then he told them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This isn't a third person. It's one of the things I think is interesting about this text. It's not a third person narrative. It's, this is not Matthew um, telling us the story from Matthew's point of view or even having some sort of Holy Spirit insight into Jesus did this and this is what he was feeling. This is Jesus himself articulating how he felt. He says out loud to a group of his followers who don't fully get what's happening yet. We know that for sure by what happens immediately after this particular text. And he says out loud to them, uh, and this is a serious no-no in sort of modern leadership thought. You never show this kind of weakness, especially if you can't fully trust the people who uh, you're leading to understand it without them thinking less of you. You don't ever show them this part of who you are. But Jesus just blurts out, I'm sad all the way down into my soul to the point that I feel like I might die. That's a human experience. That is not an exclusively divine experience. And then he does something really ungodlike, at least to our sort of religiously tuned sense of what God is supposed to be. He says, please stay here with me so I'm not alone while I'm so sad. It's fascinating to me that both of these things happen in one moment with Jesus, who we saw last week, is God, is God in the flesh. He is sad to the point where he either feels like he's going to die or he wants to die, and he doesn't want to be alone while he feels that way. We also know, uh, as I said, that these silly humans that he confided in and asked to be in with him end up doing what? Falling asleep. And he got frustrated by that, and he got hurt by that. Both very human responses to that kind of thing. And this matters because I think it cuts to the quick of what we misunderstand about God when our suffering and our sadness call us to feel distant from him or cause us to feel abandoned by him. Because in Jesus, God experienced what it means to suffer as a human and how that makes us feel. And he now joins us in our suffering. And that's hard to understand sometimes, but he is redeeming all of our wounds, not from a distance as someone who's above all of it, but from the inside out as someone who has known soul-splitting sadness that makes you just want to curl up and die and who is with us in the present as our full redemption is still unfolding. That's who Jesus is. That's why his humanity and these kinds of experiences really matter to us. So he had these real emotional and spiritual needs. There's other ways to tell that he had real human spiritual needs, and I think one of the most obvious is that he pauses regularly throughout his ministry to, to retreat from all that's going on, including his mission to be refilled by the Father. And I think this is really something that we should pause to consider. In, in He packed everything that we consider significant about his mission for the most part, he packed into three years of his life, 
which the longer you live, the more you realize is not that long. And it would make sense that in that short period of time, given the, the enormity of his mission and given that he was God, that he could just keep going like the Energizer Bunny for three years straight and get it all done, right? If he wasn't human, that's how it should unfold. But he doesn't because he recognizes the nature of humanity is that we will give and that we will go and we will have to pull back and allow the Father to, to refill us. And his pulling back wasn't self-indulgent, wasn't just to sort of self-protect for selfish reasons. It was to connect to the Father, to be cared for, and to be refueled. And I think that's instructive for those of us who at times tend to just keep going and going and going and think the mission is too important. Whatever your mission in that moment is, is it's too important. I can't stop. I can't pause. Are you above Jesus? <laughs> is the question that looms over that way of thinking. And it looms over when you are, if you're that kind of person for whom it's easier to keep doing that, but you're surrounded by people who do need to pull back and recharge, and you look at them with frustration and think, this is too important. How can it? Well, this is the model of humanity that we're given in Jesus. And he had real spiritual need to pause and connect with the Father. We also see in the scriptures that Jesus faced trials and temptations. Uh, the most obvious example of this is, ob is clearly in Matthew 4, which tells us this. I'm not going to read the full text of it, but, but uh, some of it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the, the, the devil says, if, you're, if, if God is God, then throw yourself down and he'll catch you, is the next temptation that he faces. And then the third one is this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, to, and let me pause right here. We read this passage. I read this passage for years and had trouble relating to it because I've never had the devil say to me, you should worship me in an audible voice, right? And so this feels sort of abstracted from my experience of real temptation, and I don't think it's supposed to be because we have a very modern sense of what it means to worship the devil, right? If you grew up, especially in my generation, you think of playing heavy metal records backwards and things like that as an example of what... That's not the point here. The, the enemy is simply saying, orient your life somewhere other than your father's mission. That's it. That is, that is walking away from who the Father is and who Jesus was made to be and accepting the enemy's alternative sense of power and, and kingdom. And that's what he's inviting Jesus to do. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the scriptures tell us, Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Jesus had the opportunity, I think the, the important part of this, is Jesus had the opportunity to have his needs met by something or someone other than the Father when the Father wasn't giving him what it seemed like he needed. He was hungry. It seemed like he needed food. He had the opportunity to have that need met from a source that was clearly not the Father and was not the Father's timing. And that's tempting. 
when we have needs that we think, I need this to fill me right now, and God is not giving it to me, I will turn here. Jesus knew that kind of experience. He also, here in verse 8, was offered a shortcut to all of the power, to all of the safety, and all of the comfort that the world could offer, which is understand the gravity of this is beyond the obvious. The obvious to us is, wow, yeah, it would, great. It would be great to have all the kingdoms of the world. Think about this from Jesus' perspective. The enemy is not only offering him all of this power, he's offering it to him for free. He's giving him a shortcut to something that Jesus already knows he can only otherwise attain through the cross. He's not just saying, if, if I have this kind of moment with the enemy and he says, here, I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world for you to rule over. I'm, not, I'm thinking, well, that might be kind of cool. I think people are idiots in general. And so if I had all the power over them and all of their stuff under my control, what could go wrong, right? That's how most of us would sort of respond to that moment. But I'm not thinking, if I don't say yes to this, I know the only other path for me to the power that I was made for is dying on the cross. That's not weighing on me in that moment of temptation. And it is for Jesus. And that, just because he's God, doesn't make that easy. We know that thinking about the cross and taking that path was not easy for him because when he got close to it, he asked the Father, if there's any other way, are we still on this track? Is this still where this is headed? So in this moment, when the devil offers him all this power, he's thinking, well, even if he's not as sort of lustful for power and stuff as most of us might be, he's thinking it could at least circumvent that, right? So he's offered here another way to power, and he declines it, even though he knows that will mean embracing God's way to power through self-sacrifice on the cross instead of suddenly be, being given the approval of the world's power system or suddenly uh, having an avenue to attain influence in the world's power systems or even sitting atop those systems. He embraces for himself and I think models for the church. And I, he, he embraces and models for us God's way of real power, which is we, de, we lay down our lives and we resist the temptation to sort of curry favor and gain influence and gain power in the world's systems. And there we find in that sort of death in that laying down of our lives, we find God's resurrection power instead of these earthly powers that are surrounding us and tempting us. And I think this is instructive for the church. And I don't think its inclusion here is accidental for the moment that we find, our, find ourselves in in 2017. And that's all I'll say about that for now. <clears throat> but Jesus knew the lure of taking what seems attractive or what seems like it would fill our needs even though it wasn't God who was offering that thing that seems attractive or filling our needs. Hebrews 2 tells us this about Jesus and temptation because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. 
He can help us in our moments of temptation because he suffered as he faced temptation. And then in chapter 4 it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. When you face temptations, whatever the temptation, we, we, we all face some common temptations, and then there are things that just vex us individually that seem easy for other people. When you face those things, when you face the temptation to be jealous of the life that someone else has, you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with that weakness. You have one who in every respect has been tested as you are. When you face the temptation to order your life around money or to cling to the comfort that this stuff that we accumulate can seem to give us. You do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with that weakness. You have one who in every respect has been tested as you are. When you face the temptation of lust to take possession of something that is not yours, you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with that weakness. You have one who in every respect has been tested as you are. When you ha- face the temptation to be angry at the lot that you've been given in life and to not be offered a way out, when you face the temptation to despair because of your circumstances, you do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weakness. You have one who in every respect has been tempted to be angry at God, to despair at his circumstances, just like you are. And I think understanding this and taking hold of this and allowing Jesus to truly be with us in these spaces is essential to our lives because we can come in here on Sundays and we can sing these songs about our faith and in the moment really mean them and really feel something rise up in us that says, nothing can shake this. This thing that I have, this trust that I have in the Father, nothing out there can eat away at that, and then step out of this space and face those trials, and suddenly chaos breaks loose in our hearts, in our spirit. And I think this is how we learn to worship like we worship here, to worship that way in the depths of those moments. Because Jesus, the scriptures tell us Jesus inhabits the praises of his people, which is true. And I think that's great. And I think we should understand that when we worship here. But I think it's led to a tremendous misunderstanding for us that really affects the way we live on a day-to-day basis in that we feel like it means he is uniquely alive when we sing and we get a certain feeling. And Jesus inhabits the praises of his people, but Jesus also inhabits the suffering of his people. He is alive in those spaces just as much as he's alive in whatever spaces where you feel the best about his presence. I know that's hard to take hold of and live out, but the scriptures tell us it's true. The scriptures tell us it's what makes Jesus different. That he came, God, in the flesh and experienced everything that we experience and yet overcame it on our behalf. Scriptures also tell us that Jesus was subject to common human limitations. These things may not seem as big and powerful, but they just continue to remind us he was really one of us. He was limited by time. He was limited by space. 
He was limited by physical strength. He was limited by his personal capabilities, whatever those were. He had limited knowledge, which is hard for us to imagine because he was God. But we have a couple of examples, at least, of situations where he didn't know things that you would think, well, God surely knows that, including he tells his people before he leaves, before he dies and is resurrected and ascends to the Father that all that's going to happen, and then I'm going to come back someday, and even I don't know when that's going to happen. He didn't know uh, everything that we think God would know in the way that God would know it because his humanity made him one of us in uh, various ways. And then the last one that we'll look at tonight is that Jesus grew like other humans. And I think this is helpful also to us in our relationship with him and understanding that he really lived the kind of life we live. Luke 2 tells us the obvious, that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, that he grew up. This is describing him as a boy becoming a man, that he grew up. But it doesn't just say he physically grew up. It said he grew, says he grew in wisdom, and he grew in favor with God and man. And then Hebrews 5 tells us something really interesting, that son though he was, though he was the son of God, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eter eternal salvation for all, all who obey him. He learned, like we have to learn, obedience, and he learned it through suffering. So though Jesus was God, though he was one with the Father, though he was the exact imprint of God's being in the form of a man, he was truly human. He really was a man, just like uh, all of us are truly human. And that really matters. It matters for the fullness of the redemption that he earned. And it matters for the intimacy of our relationship with the one who is always able to sympathize with our weaknesses and with our reality. We've looked at two different parts of this passage in Hebrews 2, and I want to kind of pull it all together and let you see the fullness of what the writer of Hebrews says in this context. The first verse we looked at tonight was this. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And then the writer of Hebrew goes on, Hebrews goes on to fill in the full picture. For surely... It is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His humanity matters matters to our redemption, matters to our walk with him, and to our understanding of what we were made for. We looked last week at, we kind of jumped off into all of this from Psalm 139 last week, and given that we know Jesus is God and that he reflects exactly who God is, I encouraged us to sort of try to make this movement that the psalmist makes in Psalm 139, where he goes from saying, you have searched me, to saying, search me, to, to really embracing and receiving the nature and the goodness of God as God who knows everything. He, he, he said, you've known me, and then he says, 
know me. You discern my thoughts. Test me. You know it completely. And again, know my thoughts. I want to invite you to do the same thing in light of his humanity tonight. The The reality that Jesus didn't, as the scriptures say, didn't see equality with the Father as something to cling to, to resist becoming human like us, but instead chose to join us in all the joy and the pain of humanity for our sake, I think adds a whole new dimension to how we can make this same movement that the psalmist makes. Um, We can ask him these things through his ongoing presence with us and through his words as they're revealed in the scriptures and particularly Matthew chapter 7 as we move forward into that recognizing that he is a high priest who can sympathize with us in every way and inviting him, search me, test me, and know me. Let's pray. Father, may we embrace Jesus as who he is. May we trust him and take him at his word that he is one with you that he is the exact imprint in our flesh of who you are. And may we be changed by that. Show us the goodness of God as revealed in Jesus. Show us how we are loved and, and remind us that he is present with us in all of our experiences, in all of our joys, in all of our difficulties. And by your spirit, change us through his life, through his work on the cross, through his resurrection, and through his words as we have them recorded for our lives. And we pray all of this in that name of Jesus. Amen.